0: And so, you know, I want nothing to do with it. Others of you, uh, you know, perhaps you're in your your late 30s or maybe your 40s, and 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 you've been single this entire time, and, and you've really wrestled with God. You've wanted to get married, and God's just not brought someone into your life. And so you have you've uh, come to uh, to understand that hey, this is probably not God's will for my life, and, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna remain single. And so. Now, here you are, and, and you've made that commitment to the Lord, and now you're about to hear a message on marriage. Uh, other folks in our, in our church family are, are widows and widowers. We've had a number of ladies who've lost their spouses over uh, the last year, year and a half or so. And, and so they're, they're mourning uh, not only the death of their spouse, but also the, the death of their, their marriage. And so that's a, that's a, a difficult thing to process uh, then we've got folks in our church family who've been, who are in the midst of divorce or being, di- or, or are divorced, and, uh, you know, they've got, they've got regrets, and, uh, you know, they, they've, they, there's been wounds that have been inflicted upon them, and so hearing some of this stuff is difficult, and then you have the folks who, who are married, and, and, and for some folks, you got a great marriage. Uh, Kathy and we've been married for almost 33 years. I mean, I, I can't imagine what life would be like without her and so you know when when I come to something like this I'm like yeah I want to learn and stuff like that but there's others in our church family who are in a horrific marriage Uh, perhaps your spouse is is abusive physically or or maybe uh, emotionally and uh you've had to struggle with what's god's will for your life in in the midst of, of all of that uh may, maybe your, your spouse isn't uh, abusive but but maybe your marriage is just really disappointing it's it's not what you thought it was supposed to be what was advertised is not what was delivered and so uh in the midst of all of that you can imagine i'm uh, trying to talk to people from all of those different backgrounds and and so that can create some some trepidation but what, I, what I, I've been praying is, you know, God, would you, uh, through your sovereignty, would you take my weakness, my sin, my frailty, would you just shove all of that stuff aside? And uh, would you speak to your people today? And so that's, that's what I'm hoping for. So uh, regardless of where you fit into that picture that I just described, I believe God's got something for you here uh, today uh, so so let 's get started what we 're going to do is uh, we 're going to spend some time uh, this morning talking about the current state of, of marriage in America, and then we 're going to spend a, a fair amount of time uh, talking about uh, just some basic principles that God has laid out for marriage that are found in Genesis chapter two and Ephesians chapter five and so uh, we 're going to go to Ephesians chapter five first is where we 're going to head so if you have a Bible. Opening up to Ephesians chapter five, we're going to look at verses 22 to 33. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the table around the room. Please feel free uh, to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have that Bible. You know, take it home, read it. Don't use it to like balance your dining room table or something like that. I mean, actually use the thing uh, because it's God's word and it's God power. Power and it will. Uh, transform your life so Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 33 and if you're able to stand if you would do so in honor of God's word please wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, what I just read for you is... uh, the foundational passage in the Bible regarding marriage. And and the Bible has lots to say about marriage, uh, lots of specific things to say about marriage. But the reality is the entirety of God's word speaks into the issue of marriage because the entirety of God's word speaks into the issue of relationships, specifically our relationship with the God of the universe. And when we get our relationship with the God of the universe squared away, we can get our relationship with other people squared away. And so I I use this particular passage whenever I do a a wedding. And, And how it typically works is I do a little introduction and things like that. And then I come to this passage of scripture and I start reading, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and gave himself up for her. And I continue reading, but by the time I get to that point, there are all kinds of things happening in the audience. I've got a unique perspective uh, in a wedding. I've got a unique perspective in in a worship service is I get to see all of you and all of your faces, and I get to see all of the faces of those who are in the wedding. And so typically what happens is I begin to read through that passage some people start squirming in their seats. Uh, Other people begin like wives start to rib their husbands or husbands rib their wives. Uh, There's like whispering that starts going on. Some people just glare at me like, I can't stand you. I don't even know you and I hate you right now. Uh, Other people, the blood drains out of their face. Still other people, they get beat red and uh, as a pastor i got to confess it's a pretty scary position to be in all right i mean you know you never know what whack job is out there they got like an ak47 like shoved down their pants or something like that and they're just going to like mow down the pastor and i'm going to be like a pen live article next week or whatever and uh, despite those angry glares, I push on for multiple reasons, uh, primarily because I love the Lord and I wanna be obedient to him, but also because I know I need to keep moving forward because I'm between everyone and the reception and that's where the food's at. And uh, so I keep pressing on and then I begin to work my way through the, through the wedding service. And what happens at the end is always quite remarkable. Uh, invariably, I'll have people come up to me and say, you know what, pastor? I have never heard anything like that before in my life. Others will say that's the most meaningful wedding that I've ever Attended. Some will say, I am so glad I came and, and heard what you had to say, you really made me think. I've even had newlyweds call me like a, a day into their honeymoon and say, you will not believe what my friend who, who is not a follower of Jesus Christ said about that message. And it's, it's really encouraging, but you need to understand this has nothing to do with, with my writing skills, with my oratory ability, with my infectious charm. Uh, my amazing humor that you guys are so familiar with, or my stunning good looks, which bring you back every week here. Uh, No, the reason why people are so affected with what they hear is because for many of them, for the very first time in their lives, they've been presented with a biblical view of what marriage actually is. And uh, what has happened is their world has been completely rocked. Now, before I go any further here, I, I need to kind of lay out a disclaimer. Uh, I'm gonna spend probably the next 10 to 15 minutes and I'm, I'm gonna talk about the state of marriage in America right now. And then we're gonna ultimately begin to, to work through the Bible passage. So. Uh, for some of you who are, you know, you're starting to think like, you know, all this guy's doing is giving statistics and stuff. When's he going to, you know, get to the Bible? I'm ultimately going to get to the Bible. But I think we need to have these statistics to kind of lay out a uh, a, 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 ground, a, 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 an area where we can see what, what marriage actually looks like. And uh, for those of you who are in your mid-50s or younger, Uh, Basically, my generation and the generations that have come after me, uh, you know that uh, marriage is on the ropes. Marriage has been on the decline, and it has been that way for probably the last 45 to 50 years. Uh, Today's divorce rate is uh, nearly double what it was in 1960. Uh, What they say is that about 45% of all marriages in America end in divorce. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents. Today, only 60% are. In uh, 1960, 72% of all adults were married. Today, only about 55% are. And as a result, people living in the 21st century in America, especially young people, have been living with the consequences of these statistics. Uh, they don't see much hope for having a good marriage. But at the same time, uh, they don't want to remain single, so they, they, they try to find the middle ground. If, if I don't think marriage is a good idea, yet I don't want to be single, then typically what happens is I decide that I'm going to move in with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. and In 1960, there were 439,000 cohabitating couples, In 2016, there are nine million. That's a 34% annual increase. Currently, a quarter of all women between the ages of 25 and 39 are living with their boyfriend. By the time a woman reaches her late 30s, 60% of them will have lived with a boyfriend at some point of time in their life. And that obviously describes uh, many people in in our living water family. Now, why do people do that? Why do people choose to to live with another person, uh, live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? Well, first of all, it's convenient. Okay, obviously, two people can live a lot cheaper than, than one person can live. I mean, if you're you gotta rent a, a, a one bedroom apartment and that, that apartment's gonna cost you 900 bucks or so and you can uh, have uh, your boyfriend move in with you and now it's uh, two people that are, are sharing the load and sharing the groceries and you only need one vacuum cleaner versus two vacuum cleaners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, uh, just a completely pragmatic convenient rule. Uh, the other way is uh, people see it as a way to judge whether this person is actually a worthy marriage partner, so you know this is going to like going to be a, a trial run and, and, and not not to be crude it 's like, almost like a test drive where you you're, you're, you're being, you know you 're being tested you people want to see whether you 're actually worthy of of being my spouse or their spouse, and they ask all kinds of questions Are we going to be sexually compatible you know so is this person and I are we going to be able to intimately work out together. Uh, Can we get along with each other? You know, we're going to be in a close relationship, being in marriage. Can can we actually uh, get along with each other when we're in this 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week kind of thing? Uh, Other people are like, well, I need to find out if there's something really freaky about this person. You know, do they do weird things that I don't know about? I want to find that information out. And on top of it, living together gives people the opportunity to be able to get out of dodge quickly i mean i'm not I'm not married i i, I so there's no legal ties or anything like that. So if I want to shut this bad boy down, I can get out tomorrow. You know the only thing I've got to worry about is maybe breaking a lease or you know maybe we're going to have to cut the dog in half because we bought the dog together or something like that so uh so what happens is these people see living together as a way to improve their chances of having a good marriage. But here's what they don't know. In Mike and Harriet McManus's book called Living Together, Miss Risk, and Answers, they, they tell the sad truth about living together that nobody ever wants to talk about. And here's the sad truth. 40% of couples who ultimately move in together, they eventually break up. Another 10% of those couples, they they will uh, never ever marry. They'll just stay together for the balance of their lives and they will never ever marry. Perhaps you know people like that. And then the remaining 50%, they ultimately get married. But here's what goes on in those marriages. Of those 50% who eventually get married, they will have a 50% greater rate of divorce than people who marry and never have lived together before. Now, this is obviously, it's counterintuitive. You know, it seems like, well, if I, if I live with someone for a while, I kind of figure these things out. And then if I get married, our, our marriage ought to be stronger. But the fact of the matter is people bring with them into their marriage relationship this temporal idea that I can get out of Dodge quickly. And so when things go south in the midst of the marriage, The whole living together mentality kicks in and the people decide that I'm going to get out of Dodge rather than stick this out. So what happens ultimately is in the marriage, things get hard, and in marriage, things are hard. If you've been married for any length of time, it's not, you know, all fun. A lot of parts of marriage are just simply difficult. So what happens, things get hard, they check out, just like they would have when they're cohabitating. But that's not the only downside. The U.S. Department of Justice reports that women who are living with someone who is not their spouse, they're 60 times more likely to be assaulted than if they were married. Now think about that. It's not 62% more, it's 62 times more. So what that means is if you're in a living together situation ladies the chances of your spouse beating you cursing you out abusing you either physically or verbally or emotionally is 60 times too greater 60 times 62 times greater than if you would have gotten married to someone who you hadn't lived with before The National Institute of Mental Health reports that women who live with their boyfriend have a three times greater rate of depression than married women. The Journal of Marriage and Family found that women between the ages of 20 and 37 who lived with their boyfriend prior to getting married are 3.3 times more likely to have an extramarital affair. See, living together isn't nearly as good as it sounds, and it's definitely not the solution to the declining rate of marriage in America. So if for the last 50 years, marriage in our culture has been spiraling out of control, and if living together isn't a good alternative, what do we do? Do we declare marriage a, a thing of the past, a, an institution from a, from a bygone era? Do we turn a blind eye to the the even greater problems of living together, or do we ask ourselves, is something missing? Perhaps we, 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 something's wrong. Maybe uh, we're looking for answers in the wrong place. And I believe that's ultimately the question that needs to be asked, answered, is have we looked for answers in the wrong place? And the truth is, rather than focusing on marriages that don't work, perhaps you need to focus on marriages that do work. Because here's where the facts are remarkable good marriages they're actually really good super good while 45 percent of marriages end a divorce here's what they don't tell you the greatest percent of divorces happen when you get married before you're 18 years old if you've dropped out of high school and people who've had a baby together before they got married That's where the high rates of divorce happen. But according to a Rutgers University National Marriage Project, those who've graduated from high school, those who have some level of of post-high school education. It could be you've gone into the military. Maybe you've gone to community college. Maybe you went to a technical school. Maybe you're doing an internship or something like that. If you've got a, a steady income going on, if you profess faith, if your family of origin has been intact, If you marry after the age of 25, if you don't have a child until after you're married, the divorce rates are crazy low. Furthermore, a a retirement study that was done by the US government shows that those who've been continuously married, by the time that they retire, they have 75% more income than those who have never married or who have lived together or who have divorced. And when it comes to happiness in marriage, over 60% of those who are married report they're very happy. And of the balance, what's amazing, of that balance, two-thirds of those who are unhappy, if they stick with it over the course of the next five years, and they actually do work to help improve their marriage, they end up reporting that they're very happy. Additionally, research reports that those who are married are more satisfied with their lives than those who are single, divorced, or living with a partner. Uh, Those are hard things to hear. I understand that. And study after study demonstrates that kids who grow up in a married two-parent family with a mom and dad, not two moms, not two dads, but a mom and dad, have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who don't. You only have to talk to a single mom or a single dad in our church family to realize that. We've got some incredible single moms and single dads. We try to pour our hearts into their lives, but if you talk to any of them, they will tell you it is hard raising kids by yourself. It's a challenge. Being a mom trying to raise two or three kids on your own without your husband at home, that's hard. Being a dad trying to, to raise a daughter, how do you teach your daughter, how do you help your daughter when her menstrual cycle occurs? How do you do that as, as a guy? How do you figure that out? When the, when the, the bully is, is abusing your, your son as a mom, how do you deal with some of those things? How do you help them? I mean, we were designed to have this complementary thing going on, a mom and a dad working together to raise kids. now I realize that's not the way that it always works. But that is ultimately what's in our best interest of our kids. And good marriages aren't just good for husbands and wives and kids, they're good for our society. Because marriage is the stabilizing force in society. When marriages flourish, society flourishes. You look back at at history, and when marriages are going strong, society is going strong. When marriages start to tank, society loses its mind. And we're seeing that even in our own culture right now. You see, the problem isn't with marriage. The problem is with our culture's distorted view of marriage and all of the negative outcomes that flow from that view. So, So what's our culture's view of marriage? Well, here it is. Over the last 40 years, our culture has become very me-centered. It's all about me, I, what I want, what I need, how it's going to be. It's rarely about the other person. We don't really care. And actually, we don't even care what, not only about what's about the other person, but we really don't care about society in general. We don't really think that, hey, what I do ultimately has an effect on society. But the fact of the matter is that it does. It's like we're all living in that Toby Keith song that says I wanna talk about me, wanna talk about I, wanna talk about number one, oh me oh my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. You guys, some of you know that song. That's how a lot of people live. It is all about me. And this type of approach to marriage causes us to seek out the perfect mate my soulmate, the, the, the person who has been custom is gonna meet every one of my needs. And so we, we lay out these parameters. They, they need to be physically attractive. You know, if they don't look good, not gonna work. They, they need to have sexual chemistry. We need to be able to, to, to make sure that we jive sexually. Uh, we want someone who accepts us for who we are, fulfills all of our de- desires, and then demands absolutely nothing from us. And this creates incredibly unrealistic expectations. First of all, none of us is perfect. And if we do find someone who's perfect and we bring them into a relationship with us, We are going to mess them up. I always tell people, you know, even with living water, you know, if you're looking for the perfect church, you you know, living water is definitely not for it. And if you come to it, you're going to make it unperfect anyhow because you're not perfect. Now, that ends up running people away sometimes, but it's the reality of things. I mean, there's a reason why Paul, you know, tells the the Romans that there's uh, no one righteous, not even one you know, that, that we've all sinned and fall short of, of the glory of God. It's, it's because we've got problems. And that verse applies not only to us, it applies to our spouse. So when we get married, what we're ultimately doing is we're taking one sinful person and we're putting them together with another sinful person. And, and what do we expect is actually going to happen? And it's not gonna be like these two negatives ultimately make a, a a positive. You know, it's it's difficult. You bring two sinful people together, you're gonna to have trouble and issues and problems. Now, secondly, physical attractiveness is also temporal. Psalm 31 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty fades. He or she might be fine right now. You give it a couple years, right? <laughs> You let gravity and you know a diet of Doritos and Coke take over, man. things are changing. <laughs> you know, when Kathy and I were married, I was six foot one, 155 pounds. I had a full head of dark brown hair. Uh, I had a six-pack abs. I had rippling biceps, Kathy like married like Adonis. I mean, like I was awesome. Now look at me. I'm still six foot one. I'm 195 on a low gravity day, all right? Uh, There is no reason to talk about my hair whatsoever, all right? None. There's, there's six-pack abs underneath this, but there's like two liters of fat over top of it, all right? And uh, my rippling biceps, they, they just don't exist anymore. When, when I was 21, when we got married, I could pump out 100 push-ups straight and then do 20 pull-ups without any problem. Man, I, I, if I could get up on a pull-up bar, even get up to the pull-up bar right now would be a, a great thing. And then third, if you're like relying on sexual chemistry, you know, guys who are 50 like me, you know, you got to start, you know, making a good relationship with a Pfizer rep, all right? I mean, you know, it's, it doesn't go the way that you think it's always going to work out. And that's way too much information. I get that, but it's just the reality of things. And the whole part about finding someone who accepts us for who we are, fulfills all of our desires and demands nothing. Perhaps that great, uh, you know, philosopher of marriage, Albert Einstein, put it best. He said this, men marry women with a the hope they'll never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they're both gonna be disappointed. So why are so many marriages struggling? Why are so many single people disappointed or frustrated? Why are so many divorcees hurting? Why are so many kids being shuttled between mom and dad? It's because we've got a messed up view of marriage. Our culture has not taught us what marriage really looks like. But it doesn't have to be that way. In Ephesians chapter five, God gives us a totally different perspective He gives us a perspective that brings hope to married people and single people and divorced people. He gives us a perspective that is supernatural, one that will transform our lives if we allow it, Uh, a perspective that it's not about us, you guys. It's ultimately about God. And it's a perspective where we end up sacrificing more than we can ever possibly imagine, and we gain more than we could ever possibly dream. That's the perspective of marriage that God brings to the table. So let's look at that right now. Just two fundamental truths. We'll start in the first one. We'll start in Genesis. The second one, we'll we'll spend time looking in Ephesians chapter 5. So truth number one is this. Marriage is a gift from God. Allow me to take you back. Let me take you way back to day six of creation. And what a day that was after five days of wildly uh, intensive uh, creative artistic work whether it's a literal five days or five epics or five errors that's not for discussion today but those five amazing days god spoke the universe into existence he wove the earth together he uh, dug out the seas he raised up the mountains he leveled off the plains he poured out uh, living creatures into the sea and unto the land and into the air. He, all of it, he ultimately, he declares that it is good. And after all of this miraculous work, God begins to create the pinnacle of his creation. It picks up in Genesis 2 verse 5 man. And in Genesis chapter 1, we are told that he was different than the balance of God's creation because he was made in the image of God. And brothers and sisters, we have to burn that into our minds. I, every one of you, and every person who has ever walked the face of the earth has been created in the image of God. You're not some mass of of random mutations. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made by the God of the universe. Dogs and cats and baboons and, and dolphins, they are not equivalent to you and me. And we know that. All we have to do is look at the level of creativity of the human being. Think of what humanity has done. Yes, we've made huge problems, but we have done incredible things. There's no ape that's going to create this building that you're sitting in. There's no chimpanzee that is is going to have surgery on your eye and help you to be able to see. There is only one part of God's creation, that has been made in his image, and that is you and me, and we need to understand that. Society wants to to diminish that. The evil one wants to diminish that. He wants you to to think that that you're just a, a random thing. You are not. Every one of us, even the most heinous people in the world, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, you name the the hideous person, they've all been created in the image of God. We need to recognize that. And so God, he creates this man and he looks upon the man, the pinnacle of his creation. And then he declares something completely unexpected. And you know what I'm going to say. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Everything in creation God has declared is very good. But this one thing, the aloneness of man is not a good thing. Now I want you to see something that many people miss. It's the last half of verse 18. God says this, I will make a helper fit for him. Now why is that so important? It's important because that verb is in the future tense. You see, at this point in the story, God hasn't made the helper who's ultimately going to complete the man. Now hold on to that thing for a second because you're gonna need that in a moment. So what happens next? You know the story. God parades all the beasts of the field and all the birds of heaven in front of Adam. And these are the creatures that God has made before he made Adam. Now, why does God do this? He does it for, for two different purposes. The first uh, purpose is he's doing it is because God is giving Adam responsibility for creation. And he's given the privilege Uh, of, of he has that responsibility because he's been given the privilege of naming the animals even to this day typically the one who has the responsibility for something is the one who gets to name it it could be a kid it could be a business it could be a sports team it could be a church way back in 2000 when Kathy and I were beginning to 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 create living water uh It was just her and I. And and we were the ones that were responsible for living water. And we're the ones who named living water. You know, we named Mike and John and Nicole. We have responsibility ultimately for them. And so uh, that's what God is doing. He's helping Adam see that he has responsibility. But he's also doing something else. He's helping to, to make sure that Adam understands that there is nothing in creation that will ultimately complete him. There is no earthly substitute for Adam's needs. Now, God knows this, but Adam needs to know this. And so what happens is God begins to parade all of these creatures in front of Adam and, and helping to Adam to see, hey, maybe one of these guys, Adam, is going to be what, what you need. And so, you know, in the beginning, Adam's got to be really excited about this. You know, he's looking at these animals. He starts to name, he's like, Aardvark. <laughs> Hippopotamus. Platypus. You know, he's coming up with all of these great creative names. And as every one of them's going by, he's just like, well, this one's not working and that one's not working. And, and, and by the end of the day, he's kind of like, none of this stuff's working. He's starting to get like, rat, dog, cat. Just Let's just get this over with because none of this stuff is actually working for me. And then we have the amazing words of verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the man's ribs, closed it up, and it closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, do you see what God has just done? Picture what is actually happening here. After God creates Eve out of Adam's side, what does he do? He takes Eve by the arm, and he begins taking her to Adam. What's happening here? It's the first wedding. That's what you're looking at. Eve and her father, God, walking together down the, Adam to, down the aisle to Adam, who will soon be her husband. And anybody who's been to a wedding, especially those of you who've been a broomer, a grite, you have a very vivid picture in your mind right now. I will never forget that beautiful sunny day on September 20th, 1986, down there on Front Street in Steelton at St. James Catholic Church. There I stood with all of my dearest friends beside me in front of this incredibly ornate altar, looking out over all of my family and Kathy's family and my friends. And walking down the aisle begins the bridesmaids these beautiful women, Kathy's friend, Linda, her her sisters, Maria and Julie, and they keep walking down the aisle. And I'm smiling and they're smiling. And then the the little flower girl and the ring boy and stuff like that, they make their way up to the aisle. And you're trying to manage those little crumb crunchers to make sure they don't do something crazy during the wedding. And then in the doorway comes my father-in-law, Mick. I have never seen him in a a tux in my life. He's dressed to the nines. And standing beside him is Kathy. She's absolutely beautiful. She's wearing uh, the same dress that her mother got married in some 20, 25 25 years earlier. And then they begin to walk towards me, and I've got tears streaming down my eyes as as I realize the the magnitude of what is actually happening here. this, This little Italian man, he spent the last 21 years of his life protecting and providing for her. It wasn't me who took her to the hospital when she was sick. It wasn't me who, who picked her up when she got hurt. wasn't me who, who stood beside her when, when uh, disappointments came into her life. I didn't do any of that stuff. Yet here this man who invested 21 years of his life in this woman was giving her to me. It's mind-blowing. And any one of you who's, who's got girls, you get that. You got little girls right now? I mean, Sierra, your mom's protecting you like crazy. She's loving on you like crazy. They're just going to give you away to some lunatic, right? Man, you want to get the right guy. I mean, Jamie, your girls, you love those girls. You know, one day, you're going to have to do that without Will. Valuable. They're crazy valuable. And so Mick is giving Kathy to me. And that's the scene, you guys, of what God is doing with Adam. He's giving Adam this extraordinarily precious Gift. And as the distance between Adam and Eve closes, every step, this anticipation, it's got to be going through the roof, you guys. And finally, Adam can't take it any longer. And this is what he does is as Eve is standing there right in front of him with God. He says, At last, this is bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He screams, He's like, This is it. God, you did you drove all this other stuff in front of me. None of this stuff works. I mean, this is it. And Adam receives Eve, God's perfect provision. And Moses, the author of Genesis, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these words that are so familiar to all of us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Those words are God's declaration of marriage. And on that day so long ago, God created marriage as a gift for Adam and Eve and as a gift for you and me. Because God created marriage, it's God who is the one who determines what marriage is and what marriage isn't. Make no mistake about it. Men and women didn't create marriage. Kings didn't create marriage. Presidents didn't create marriage. Congresses didn't create marriage. Judicial systems didn't create marriage. God and God alone created marriage. And God did it. He created marriage as a gift for you and me. Whether we're married, single, widowed, divorced, marriage is a gift to society. It's a gift to bless couples. It's a gift to bless children, and it's a gift to bless our culture. And as the Creator of marriage, God has much to say about it. And within the pages of His Word, He talks about how marriage should and should not work, or should and should not work. And. Uh, that brings us to the second point, and it's this: In Exodus or in Ephesians <laughs> chapter five, what God teaches us is perhaps the most important thing about marriage of all, that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. These words, they serve as the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's teaching of marriage in Ephesians 5. And notice what Paul does. He directly quotes from Genesis chapter 2. But then he adds this, completely seemingly out of the blue. He says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See what Paul is saying is there's something mysterious about marriage. The original Greek word that has been translated Uh, Mystery is the word mysterion, and and it doesn't mean just mystery. It can also mean secret, but it doesn't mean like secret in a sense that something that's known only to certain groups of people. Rather, it's something that is wonderful, some amazing truth that has been hidden, that is revealed by God's spirit. It's the same word that Paul uses throughout the scriptures to talk about the saving work of God through the gospel. But here he uses it to refer to marriage. But he doesn't just say that marriage is a mystery, he says that it is a profound mystery. And the Greek word that has been translated profound is the word mega. It's where we get mega millions from, it's where we get a mega star from, megawatts, megalomaniac. That's where we get it from, all right? Literally what Paul is saying, it is a mega mysterion, that it's a mega mystery, that there is something incredibly deep behind marriage. Tim Keller puts it this way, an extraordinarily great, wonderful, and profound truth that can be understood only with the help of God's spirit. That is what marriage is. So what's this amazing secret? Look at the balance of verse 32. That it refers to Christ and the church. Just a few verses earlier in verse 25, Paul says this, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, "'having cleansed her by the washing of water "'with the word, that he might present the church "'to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle "'or any such thing, that she might be holy "'and without blemish.'" What's the secret of marriage? It's that husbands are to do to their wives What jesus did for you and me that he gave himself up for us you see in marriage god shows us a living breathing version of the gospel that's what marriage is all about what we see in marriage is that that the god of the universe loved so much that he was willing, that Jesus the the Son, the the second person of the Trinity, was willing to submit himself to God the Father, to come to this earth, to be incarnated in in the man God, Jesus Christ, to, to live a holy and just life, a life that you and I are incapable of living, and that Jesus would be rejected by all of the people and that he ultimately would be crucified on a cross, paying the debt that you and I owe for our sins. But not only would he die, but he would be raised again on the third day, conquering sin and death once and for all. It's Jesus' sacrificial life and death that's brought us into this great union with God the Father. And do you understand the implication of this? When God designed marriage way back in Genesis chapter 2, He was thinking about the gospel. He was thinking about Jesus and what Jesus would do for us. You see, it's the marriage explains the gospel. The gospel ultimately explains marriages. Why do marriages fail so much in America? Why is it on the ropes? It's because our our cultures turn marriage into something that it simply isn't. Our culture says it's about self-fulfillment. It's about me, about what I can get, and about what I can become. But the gospel says this, that marriage is about self-sacrifice and about others and about what I can give and about what I can help my spouse to become. That's what gives marriage the power. So when you read in Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husband's That's what Jesus is doing to God the Father. He is submitting himself to the will of God the Father. When you read husbands love your wife like Christ loves the church, what's that about? Guys, it's about dying to ourselves. It's about putting our our spouse's needs before our needs. Who wouldn't submit to someone who does that? Kathy willingly submits to me. Why? Because she knows that I am doing what is in our best interest. I am always putting her needs before—most of the time, I'm putting her my needs, her needs before mine. I mess up. She lets me know that. She never submits when I'm going to want her to do something ungodly, because her ultimate allegiance is to the God of the universe, not to Mike Leonzo. And I'm called to sacrifice. And so what happens is we don't get that. We enter into marriage thinking it's all about me. And our spouse enters into marriage thinking that it's all about them. And there's 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 no submission, there's no sacrifice, there's none of that. It's this crazy mess. You get some clown of a guy coming up and saying, Well, my wife doesn't submit to me. I'm like, dude, you're just jacked up, man. You're stupid. You're just a fool. Like you, I guarantee you, you're not living the way that God has called you to live. You wouldn't be having this problem. And you see, folks, this matters. How my marriage works, it matters because it, it is a, a picture of the gospel to a watching world. When people see how this interaction thing happens, the, the, the world's like, that, that's, that's weird. That's different. It's unusual. And so Kathy's called to live out the gospel in our marriage. I'm called to live out the gospel in, 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 in our marriage. But what about you guys? What, what about the ones who are sitting here right now who, who are married, but whose marriage is nothing like you want it to be? What are you to do You're to live out the gospel. Somebody's got to start behaving like Jesus. Someone in that relationship's got to say, you know what, it's about Jesus, it's not about me. Somebody's got to do that. And it may take a while. You may start behaving like Jesus, and they take complete advantage of you. Jesus was on this earth for three years. They abused him constantly. If Jesus can make three years, certainly we can try three years. I got to believe if over the course of three years that the the, the individual in a messed up marriage, one of them begins to act like Jesus on a consistent basis, one of two things is going to happen. The other person's gonna to begin to start acting like Jesus or the other person will not be able to stand it and they will get out of dodge. And for those of you who, who are in this place who are divorced right now, you can't change that. It's not the unpardonable sin. I can't stand it that churches do that. I think it's horrific. You're not a second-class citizen. You're a son, daughter of the king. But how you interact with your ex-wife or your ex-husband, it matters. How you treat them matters. They may be complete jerks. They may have been a horrifically abusive husband. But how you treat them matters. doesn't mean you've got to reconcile stuff but it does mean that you need to be Christ-like. needs to, to be, you need to be sacrificial. You need to understand that the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians that it's better to be wronged. You know, I see husbands and wives duke it out like crazy over cars and houses and money and stuff like that. And I, I get that there, there needs to be equity, but you know, when something is blowing up, there's not always going to be equity. And sometimes it's just better to be wronged. To say, you know what, God? He can have the house. You know what, God? He can have Oscar the pit bull. You know what, God? She can have this, that, or the other thing. Because I want to be like Jesus. That's who I want to be like. I want people to see the gospel overflowing in my life. And I'm going to believe that that God who tells me that he owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides, that he can make up the difference. I don't got to slug it out for all of this stuff. That's a tough place to be. I get that. When God tells you that, hey, it's better to be wrong, sometimes he's probably right would be my guess. What about those of you who are single right now? Well, first of all, uh, if God's called you to to remain single, that is hard and beautiful at the same time. The Apostle Paul says, you know, if you're single, you can don't have the the struggles of of caring for a spouse and kids and all that kind of stuff you can devote yourself to to doing the work of God I mean that that's reality I mean I got responsibilities at home I got two boys that that are grown I you know they don't ever ungrow I mean they don't ever stop being your kids if I didn't have those things I could spend more time caring for people at church So that's a high calling. Remaining single is a high calling. But if that's not what God's calling you to to be, to to remain single, and and you want to look for a spouse, you need to know something. Because you've been created in the image of God, you're worth it. Don't settle. Do not settle. Don't don't think that this is as good as it gets because it's not as good as it gets. God wants you to be with someone. He will provide that person in your time when he's got it planned. He will do that. And it won't be a a person who's a non-Christian that you're going to be praying, I pray that he's going to be a Christian so that I'm not unequally. He won't do that. He's going to give you a a godly husband or a godly wife. He will do that. He'll do it in in his time. And that's the best thing of all. A lifetime of aloneness is better than a week with someone who's going to treat you horrifically. Ask people in this room. There there are plenty of ladies in this room who've, who've been in abusive relationships. You ask them. It's horrific. and It doesn't matter. You're a widow. You're single. You're married. Your marriage is a mess. We all are called to display the gospel in our lives, to live that out. start doing it. 250, 300 people start doing that in central Pennsylvania. It's going to make a crazy difference. It will only make a difference in society. It's going to make a difference in your life and mine. Remember the high calling that we've been called to. Remember that, that God's spirit lives inside of you, and that he can empower you to live for him in ways that his gospel is shown. Let me pray. Lord God, thanks for these folks. Oh, it's been quite a weekend, and I thank you for their attention. I pray, Heavenly Father, that I may have clearly articulated uh, your word I pray that there's not a single person in this place that 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 leaves wounded heavenly Father but rather they leave challenged encouraged perhaps affirmed father for those in this room who uh, Lord who are single and who have have, have given up on on the the possibility of marriage they still want to get married but just doesn't seem like it's going to happen i pray lord god that that you would bring the right person into their lives for those who are single and who have said lord god you you've you've given me this singleness i have gone through this divorce or i've never met this person whatever it might be heavenly father but i know right now that i need to 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 be just with you and no one else i pray father that Lord, you would be sufficient because I know that you are. And I thank you for them. Lord, for those who are are in uh, great marriages right now, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to to protect them, that that they would keep a short list of, of things that they've done wrong, that they would be apologetic very quickly. I pray that husbands and wives would live in a way that affirms your gospel. Lord, for those who are in difficult marriages right now, Father, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would empower one or both of them to begin to act like Jesus. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction. Lord, for those who are in abusive marriages, Father, I pray that you would free them of those abuses, that you would protect them that they would understand, Heavenly Father, that there are times, appropriate times, when when they need to get out of dodge. And Lord, that the church is here to help them and to guide them through that. Those are decisions not to be made uh, independent, but Lord, decisions that get wise counsel, help us to to care for husbands and wives who are, are in those situations. Lord, for those who have been divorced, pray, Jesus, that you would help them to have a godly relationship with their ex-spouse, for them to do uh, what they can do to demonstrate the gospel independent of what the other person might do. Lord, for those in this room who are widows and widowers right now, Heavenly Father, who have not only grieved the loss of a spouse, but who have grieved the loss of a wonderful marriage, I pray that you would meet all of their needs. Especially pray for uh, these ladies in this room whose uh, losses are very recent. I pray that you would meet all of their needs. God, you are good and you are wonderful. You have called us to a great purpose to be the clarions of your gospel message. Help us to live that out in all ways. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Just stand as we prepare to close.